And let's read Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 to 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterward his brothers talked with him. Now, is that a story or what? Joseph had succeeded in hiding his identity twice from his brothers when they came down to Egypt looking for food. He had been able to keep them from knowing who he was. And during that time, he didn't lose time, but he really studied them. And he scrutinized them to see what was going on with them. He was able to observe the changes that they had made in their family relationships. And as I read the story, did you pick up on that? Joseph was able to hear them, for instance, berating themselves, faulting themselves for the judgment of God that they became convinced they had brought on their own heads as a result of the evil deed that they had carried out against their brother now about 22 years prior. And so their memory hadn't gone bad. And as it often is with us when we have given ourselves to sin and something bad happens, immediately we think, God's no dummy. 
I know what's going on here. And then we have a choice, and the choice is whether we will repent, whether as God tests us with whatever he sends to us, our hearts naturally stiffen our necks and our backs, and we arch with rebellion, or whether we turn to God humbly and indicate that no matter what he does to us, he is just, he is fair, he is true. But Joseph is watching for these telltale signs. And no clearer indication of the remorse and repentance of the brothers in general, and particularly of that brother Judah, could be given than the impassioned plea for mercy that we read in chapter 44, that last half of the chapter where Judah, you know, his heart is completely on the line and he's just pleading for them, for his brother, and that Joseph will be merciful and allow him to take the place of the guilty one to pay the guilty one's penalty himself, the sin of his brother, that he himself will be the one that's punished for it. He just thinks about the grief that his father would go through, losing this second precious son of his favorite wife. And even Judah, is it's too much for him. And so he says, let my brother Benjamin go back and let me bear the burden of my brother's sin. Now, Joseph's brothers have accumulated 22 years of guilt for their evil actions against both their younger brother Joseph, but also against their father. Joseph, though, what about him? What has he accumulated? Now, we read stories and we read them knowing the end. And it's one of the great tragedies of uh, of becoming familiar with this story is that it can never shock you the way it ought. So we know that Joseph forgives his brothers. In fact, we know more than I've read this morning. We even know that after Joseph's dad dies, we know how Joseph responds to them. But if we can for a moment suspend our intimacy with the story and ask the question, well, maybe a good way to ask it is this. Ask yourself, if this had been you, had you been Joseph, what would you have spent 22 years accumulating? And you know something? If I had a video camera right now and I could pan it out over you and you could all see on a monitor your faces and people were free to be honest, you know what's interesting? A lot of the people here, based on your face, could tell you how you would have spent those 22 years. Because our faces, now we all joke about our faces coming to resemble our dogs, right? You all know that's true. Whether it's because people buy dogs that look like them or... I mean, what, what other kind of dog could Aaron Shostrin have? It's just, just a cuddly, lovable, cute thing. Now, I'm not saying anything about Aaron. <laughs> I won't comment about some of the rest of your dogs. I have noted, though, that the only animal in Vern Timmer's house is a dead animal. <laughs> but it is true that as we get older, our faces do reflect our character, don't they? And Joseph 
had a certain character. It was a character that had been formed in the crucible of 22 years of accumulated response to the things that he had gone through. And that character came out when the test came. We know how he responded to the test. We know that Joseph's response was to be merciful. But why? Where did that come from? Well, it's very interesting that as we go through this account, we see Joseph struggling. Joseph is not just a sap. He's not somebody who is... uh, so committed to overlooking his own sins that he never acknowledges the sins of anyone else. That's not strength of character. That's perversity. That's, uh, that's a, a particularly egregious form of narcissism. You know, that because I won't look at myself, I won't look at you, and then we'll just all agree to lie to each other. Well, that's not what's going on with Joseph. Joseph is careful, and he what? He puts them through tests. And what is the purpose of the test? Well, we can't know all the purposes, but certainly one of the purposes was to look at the character of these brothers, to see how they had dealt with those 22 years, to see what was oozing out of their hearts. And so he runs them through all these different things, and he he checks them out, and he checks them out. And what he sees is that these brothers wish that they could take back their actions. There's no question about that. And when the final thing comes, namely the discovery of the goblet, it's particularly clear there that they, in fact, they even say it to them, that they connect this torture, this torment that they're about to go through with their cruel action against their brother Joseph and against their father. They wish they could take back those actions It's also clear that they do love their father. I don't think anybody would argue that the only reason they ask to let Judah take his place is because of their fear of their father. Their father's an old man at this point, and they're men in their prime. But I I think it's quite clear that they have uh, grown in their respect and their affection for their father. And that they are tender-hearted, not just to their father, but to whom else? To Benjamin. It's clear that with Benjamin, their destiny is wrapped up. It's clear that they regret what happened to Benjamin's brother, and now they're not going to let the same thing happen. It's also clear that they have a deep understanding of their father's special love for their mother, Rachel, and that it's not just resentment that they have towards that. So in other words, we look at it all and what we see is that these brothers are repentant. And it's that scene into which we step in the first 15 verses of chapter 44. This indication on so many levels that Joseph has that these brothers are not still justifying themselves. They're not denying the wickedness of their actions. They're not, they haven't grown in hard-heartedness, but they have actually grown in tenderness and sorrow. And that's the scene into which we step as we read the conclusion of this ongoing story of Joseph and his uh, watching and then ultimately revealing himself to these brothers. I don't think that there are many chapters in Scripture that can compete with this one for uh, emotional... Uh, 
wait. It's an unbelievably pregnant moment. And when we read, finally, Joseph could control himself no longer. Verse 1 of chapter 45. And the tears that are a theme throughout this whole section. He wept so loudly that not just the Egyptians in his own house, but even those in Pharaoh's house heard of the incredible emotional release that Joseph went through. One thing that uh, was pointed out by one of the students of this text is that he mentions his thought that uh, in, in defending uh, his brother from being taken captive and suggesting that Joseph keep himself, Judah mentions uh, Joseph's father 17 times in that extended monologue that he gives. And the commentator suggests that that's the reason that Joseph completely loses it. Father, your father, your father, your father. Well, how did Joseph respond? As I said, because we have the end of the story, it seems obvious to us that Joseph would welcome his brothers in the end, letting bygones be bygones. We probably have not thought of the tremendous cost to Joseph of revealing his identity and of the battle that must have raged in his heart and mind leading up to that point. And it was only with the greatest heavings and torments of his soul and cries of anguish that the secret identity finally comes out. What was the other option Joseph had? Well, what's the opposite of mercy? The opposite of mercy is retribution. What's the opposite of forgiveness? The opposite of forgiveness is bitterness and resentment. Do you think that Joseph found it easy to be merciful and to forgive his brothers? I doubt it. Although it's true that 22 years is a long time to be able to get rid of bad feelings towards your brothers, I've known men who seem quite capable of going 40 and 50 years and holding quite tightly to their resentment of their brothers. As a matter of fact, I've known women who have spent the rest of their lives trying to destroy the relationship of their children with their ex-husband because of their resentment. We all have known many people who have found it quite easy to spend their entire lives nursing wounds and bearing grudges and giving themselves to bitterness. And so time can cut both ways. It can heal wounds and it can cultivate wounds. We can forget past injuries or we can nurse them. And there are few things that are more disheartening to me than to know and talk with a man or woman who's reached the days of wisdom when their hair is gloriously white and their life is consumed with bitterness and resentment. And all of us need to recognize that this is a very real danger to us. Everybody does not go into their old age peaceably. There are few things that are more difficult to bear than a home and a church and a nursing home room that is the pervasive sentiment that, that, that is constantly there is complaint and lament and bitterness and self-pity 
and resentment and a lack of forgiveness. Years and years of malice and jealousy and rehearsing wrongs that have been done to one does leave many elderly people permanently jaded and unable to see any good in anything or anyone, including their own children and their own grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. So what about Joseph? Well, Joseph had had 22 years to nurse his grudge, but when he was granted the perfect opportunity to take revenge, he turned it down. And this whole passage of Scripture is filled with what God has produced in his heart, Joseph's heart, namely mercy and compassion and forgiveness. Now, how do we account for Joseph's kindness? Well, our passage in Genesis can give us some clues. Look at verse 3 with me. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. Now, think of his brothers at this point. His brothers are in a foreign land. They're powerless. They're not, they've come there because they have no food. They have to come there just to get food. And then you add to it all of the military might, all of the riches, all of the intimidation factor. Imagine the, the war animals. Imagine what kind of chariots and what kind of, of horses they had. Imagine the armor that they had. Just think of how intimidating it is to go into a rich neighborhood ourselves here in Bloomington. And then go in to Egypt. So they're impotent. There's nothing that they can do. And this man, who's the number two man to Pharaoh, is prime minister with all the trappings of authority and power and military might and wealth, let alone the food you need. He reveals himself to them as what? The brother that they had... I mean, how ridiculous. You know, they're going to bow down to him right. You're going to die. And so they're going to kill him and then they sell him into sleep. And there he is. It reminds me of the night that I was driving back up to Wisconsin with my family in my car, and it was a black ice night. It was about one in the morning, and nobody was on the road. It was Highway 22, a state highway, flat, straight, and it was the kind of night where if you barely turned your wheel, you would start flipping out and then crash. And as I'm driving up, the, all of a sudden, right in front of me, I see a truck and I see his I see his lights begin to go like that at me and it's far enough away and then I realize that he's doing donuts down the middle of the road as he comes at me with my family in my car Now you can believe this or not but I thought we were dead. I could not turn to get off the road because then I would have started doing donuts at him. I mean, that's how bad the ice was. You might say I shouldn't have been out on the road. That's probably right, but anyhow. Um, <laughs> now, why did you laugh so loudly, David? <laughs> so anyhow, here's what happened. God was merciful. As that truck came toward me, this is true, he went by me backwards in his own lane. 
and then proceeded to do about two more circles. And then I, I looked in my rearview mirror and I saw him stop and sit there for a while, <laughs> which I would have done too if I'd been stopped. <laughs> you know? And then I saw him move around and get back headed the right way and he kept going. But he literally went by me in his lane backwards. Well, that's exactly what these, these brothers felt like with Joseph. This is, this is, to say it's their worst nightmare is just a pathetic understatement. All right? And so Joseph, look at what he says to them. It's very interesting. Verse 4, come closer to me. And then what? The end of verse 4, he says, I am your brother Joseph. And then did you notice what he says next? Whom you what? You sold into Egypt. Remember I said earlier that Joseph is not just namby-pamby. I'll lie about you if you'll lie about me. Okay? Joseph is immediately naming the sin. Now let me ask you a question. If you've been the brothers there, do you think or don't you think you would have appreciated him naming the sin? You know something? You can separate all of humanity into people who appreciate and people who don't appreciate. And you know, the test is whether or not they are humble and teachable and repentant. Because you know something? Anybody who's humble and teachable and repentant, when their sin is named, they breathe a sigh of relief because they've been diagnosed properly. It never ceases to amaze me how when we go into a doctor, we pay him money to give the proper diagnosis. And, and yet so often when we meet with elders or older women and talk to them about our sin, we want them to lie to us. No, 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 that's really not so bad. Or don't, don't, don't worry your little head over that. You know, it was just a foible. It was just a small thing. It wasn't significant, you know. And, and, I, and I think if we went to a doctor with a tumor and we could feel the mass and the doctor said to us, oh, don't worry, that's just a little pimple, you know, It'll go away after a while. We go away six months and, and now it's hurting. We come back. It's a mass. And he says, no, no, no. It's just an inflamed pimple. And we say, now, I paid you $100 six months ago. I'm paying you another $100 today. And you're going to tell me that this is a pimple? I mean, how long would you go to a doctor like that? And yet, so often, spiritually, what we want is people who will heal us with smooth words. People who will not confess sin as what it is. People who will heal us by telling us there's nothing wrong with us. Joseph didn't do this. And if I had been a brother that day, I would have said, yes, he named it. He's right. He's honest. That's what I'm guilty of. And now let the chips fall where they may. I've been dealt with honestly. This is what I need. And so he names it, but then look what he does. It's unbelievable. He says, You sold into Egypt, verse 4, but then look at verse 5. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. And you go, He named it, and then he says, Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves. 
And then he says, because you sold me here, all right? Yep, yep, we got that last time, Joseph. All right? But then he says what? For God sent me before you to preserve life. Yes, you did it. Yes, it was evil. Yes, you did it, and it was evil. But God is the one, really, that did it. And so what you see is Joseph has done what? Why is Joseph forgiving them? Why is he tender and why is he merciful? It's because Joseph has the ability by faith to see the sovereign hand of God in his life and not to make too much of people and too little of God, but rather to make everything of God and nothing of people. Do you understand that? Yes, they were real moral agents. Yes, they did things that were really wicked. Yes, we will name the wickedness. But... Don't worry about it. Don't fear. God's the one that did it, and he did it for your good. Now, let me ask you in your life, what is it in your life that you've been done wrong? And infinitely you have gone to people and told them about how you've been done wrong. You've just told it over and over and over again. And maybe you're the kind of person that despises people that go around running their mouth about how they've been done wrong. And so you've never told anybody that you've been done wrong, but your entire heart is consumed with a personal and private rehearsal of how you've been done wrong. And if you were to honestly talk to the people that know you, and you were to ask them, what is the reigning reality? What is the overarching theme of your life? They would say to you that either you're a public, I've been done wrong person, or a private, I've been done wrong person. Let me ask you, if that's the ordering principle of your life, number one, this question, do you believe in God? How can you believe in God and act as if your brothers are the controlling reality of your life? You really think they did this independently of God? You think God's so impotent that he's not the one that did it to you? What kind of a God do you believe in? A God that allows people to do evil and has no control over it and wishes he could stop it? That's Rabbi Kushner's God. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, God wishes they didn't, but, you know, there's not much he can do about it. I mean, that's exactly the thesis of the book. Any of you read it? Corroborate me. <laughs> okay? What kind of a God do you believe in? You know, churches all over the country worship that God. I think, what's the point of worshiping Him? If, if your God is not a God that controls the destinies of every ant and every man and every kingdom, then He isn't a God. And he didn't make us. And he has no authority, and he certainly isn't sovereign. And if he isn't sovereign, how can he be providential? So number one, do you believe in God? If you spend your life thinking that you're a victim, which is, of course, what all America wants you to be, is a victim. It's a very, very sneaky and pathetic way of getting ahead in America. Right? If you spend your life, what kind of God do you believe in? Number two, if you spend your life rehearsing the wrongs privately or publicly, then my question is, even if you have a God that's true, how can you know Jesus Christ? How can you know Jesus Christ if you spend your life refusing to have mercy on those who have done you wrong? 
You know what Jesus said? He got done the Lord's Prayer. You remember it. It's one of those difficult things that evangelical churches don't ever want us to read, let alone preach on. But Jesus gets done the Lord's Prayer, and we rehearse this over and over again in services, and we repeat it to ourselves when we can't pray anything else. And it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then Jesus says the thing that many of us should know even better than the Lord's Prayer. He says what? He says, for what? He says, for... If you forgive men their sins against you, then your heavenly Father will forgive your sins against him. But if you do not forgive, what? Those who have sinned against you, what? Your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. Turn and look at the text so that you can, you can believe me. So Matthew 6, beginning with verse 12, the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts, verse 12, as we also have forgiven our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then look at verse 14, 4. Jesus adds, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, this is not a sermon on the distinction between the, the, the proof of fruit and the agency of good deeds. We do not believe that it is our forgiveness which produces God's forgiveness. But Jesus ties our forgiveness to our having a heart of forgiveness. And what he's saying here and what Joseph demonstrates is that the heart that is humble before God, that recognizes his sovereignty over all evil as well as good, and that knows his provision for our sin is a heart that is forgiving in, in posture. And the heart that is not forgiving in posture is a heart that does not know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Okay, do you understand this? So if your heart is hard and you are not able to give up your grudges and all the people that have done you wrong, you might be able to milk a lot of sympathy out of everybody else in America, but when you stand before the judgment seat of God, God has said here what will be said to you. If you do not forgive others, you will not be forgiven. And you say, well, you know, that's salvation by works. I say, no, that is the proof of the pudding. You cannot claim to be a Christian who knows the reconciliation of Jesus Christ, who, being sinless, gave himself to pay for our sins on the cross. You cannot know that in any significant, saving, faithful way and be a person whose life is characterized by resentment and bitterness and lack of forgiveness. Now, here's the question. Either that's what Jesus says and that's what Joseph demonstrates or I'm a liar. And the question is, am I a liar? Or does Scripture say it? And if Scripture says it, then praise God, I have the freedom to tell you this is the truth and this is for the salvation of your souls. And so, do you believe in God? A God 
who is perfectly capable of controlling every single detail of kingdoms for the sake of fulfilling all of his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, even down to selling into slavery, even down to, at the last minute, giving up on murder and having it be slavery, all right? even down to Potiphar's wife, all right? every single detail. Do you believe in that God? And number two, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who reconciles us with God? And do you believe that when Jesus tells us if we do not forgive others, that we will not be forgiven, that he is giving you a perfect test to see whether you know the meaning of forgiveness of God in your life and whether you have the generosity of spirit to live that up with other people. You know, I'm not denying that you've been done wrong. And heaven knows, whatever wrong you've been done, it ain't nothing like Joseph. And Joseph recognized the wrong of his brothers. But you know what? Joseph forgave them. And that shows that Joseph knew God. And that he believed that God was behind every single detail and that since God was graceful and merciful to him as a sinner, that he was called to be graceful and graceful and merciful to others. Now, this will be a recurring theme, and it will go right to the end of Joseph's life. But I encourage you to think about the meaning of the character of Joseph and to apply it, actually apply it to your lives, to your marriages, to your families, to your roommates, To your brothers and sisters, Jesus says that if you forgive, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you don't, he will not.